If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. As we continue tonight in, as the last of our series titled, Imagine That. Hopefully you got the handout there at the door as you came in for tonight's message, Imagine That. We began our series in the Old Testament with servants and prophets who were being called and challenged to imagine in new ways what was possible with God. We'll conclude this series having looked at so many characteristics and qualities of the kingdom of God met in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Trying to imagine them for our own lives, we'll finish this series together with the disciples in a boat on a lake in Matthew chapter 14. I want to read for you beginning in in Matthew 14, 22. It says, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. It is the ghost time of the year. Don't ask me why. Well, I could give you a historical explanation of All Hallowed's Eve or All Saints' Day, and, but none of that would explain the 24-foot skeletons for sale at the hardware store, or why there seems to be a line to get them, and every year they come up with new imaginative ways for us to display death in our front yards, and uh, people eat it up. I don't, I don't understand Halloween people very much. I'm sorry if you're one of them. Uh, I do have some pumpkins piled on my porch, and I pretend like that's better than gravestones or skeletons that I pile vegetables in front of my front door this time of year and think that's normal. But my gourds are there, piled one on top of the other. In the springtime, I'm thinking about tomatoes and cucumbers, if anybody would like to join me. Or maybe we'll go with fruits in the spring, I don't know. Um, but it's that time of the year either way. The disciples aren't the only ones seeing ghosts, <clears throat> and it's costume time along with all the scary death things of this season, costume time. And we have a costume box at our house. That's something I never thought I would say. But underneath one of my children's beds, one of those underbed boxes, and it's full of all of the previous costumes. We're collecting them at this point. Some of them are just pajamas that kind of pass as a costume, and some of them are, are a little more impressive. You know, everything from astronaut to Incredible Hulk, from princess to Spider-Man, we've got them all, and, and dinosaur all the way to Captain America. And what's, what's funny is that when the kids come down from busting that open, which happens every now and then, and everybody takes their part, they come downstairs, and you would think there would be some, uh, uh, some commitment in what they chose to be. And I tell you, they can get creative. Uh, you haven't seen something until you've seen an Incredible Hulk astronaut that has wings, <laughs> or... Uh, Captain America with a dinosaur tail. (laughs) They can make uh, all kinds of things. Whatever you can imagine as you pull them out of that box. And Jesus' story of the kingdom of God, especially his parables in the Bible, are meant to be stories that stir up our imagination. 
They help us see the world as more than it appears to be. They say to us, imagine that or think of the possibilities in store for you. We can believe and hope in new ways when we do, when we use our imagination to think and to see like Jesus does, like his kingdom ought to. This story here in Matthew's gospel that I began reading a few moments ago is one of those stories that does more than just report an incident about Jesus' life. It's a story that does something for the imagination. It's a story that helps us see the world as, as more than it appears to be, and it reminds us that Jesus is inviting us into something more than the world appears to be. It's also the story of a failure of the imagination, isn't it? The heads of these disciples must have already been spinning. You know what they just got done doing, right? Jesus was with them when crowds came around. 5,000 men plus women and children, and they were hungry and there was no food for them. And Jesus, through some sort of amazing act, had taken a box lunch and fed 5,000 plus people. Now, they could not imagine feeding that many people, but Jesus took five loaves and two fish and said, imagine this. And he fed the crowds. What an amazing thing to witness. And then he dismissed the crowds and the disciples too so that he could get some, uh, some time alone for prayer. And so the guys crowded into the boat and they push off from the shore and they were going to go across the lake. Jesus promised to meet them later. But the wind apparently had a, a different plan in mind. They rode all night or sailed all night. They were a long way from the shore, but like we would say in Texas, they're not making very good time. They were pretty much stuck. And just before dawn, we're told specifically in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus decided to join them. He struck out into the water, made his own way. He didn't have a, a kayak or a boat or even a raft of any kind. The Bible tells us Jesus went to meet them and he decided just to stroll on the sea. He walked toward them. Imagine that. Any way you want to think about this, it's a really cool story. Jesus was a human being, like you and I are human beings. And there's one thing that we know about human beings and gravity in our world is that they don't stay on top of water. Maybe if you hold your breath and lay flat on your back for a little bit of time. You can teach babies even how to float and not drown, but nobody walks on it. And as much as there are first century minds, we like to think they were behind the times. I can guarantee you all of them also knew how water works. No surfboard, no kayak, no paddleboard, nothing. Just Jesus walking out on the water. It must have been an act of joy for him too. You got to think that he, he maybe sensed that he had that in him, but he hadn't showed it off yet. You know, he bottled up that skill for a while and he's like, ah, this is my moment. I'm going to get to use that water walking thing I've been wanting to do for a while now. He got close to them, really close, close enough to be seen in, in just the faint light, just a little bit of moonlight. And the disciples catch a glimpse of him there on the water, and, and they were terrified. They were terrified, in part because they've had a failure of the imagination. They knew 
water, like you know it. They knew surface tension on water probably better than you did, and they knew if you put a boat on it, it would float. They knew if you stepped in it, you would sink. They understood how water works. They weren't just being realistic when they looked up and decided the way that water is constructed, there is no way that anyone would imagine that Jesus was walking across the surface of it to join them in the middle of the sea. They could not imagine this could be him. They see only what they assume must be a spirit. It can't be anything physical. A ghost, they say. In his book called the Unpredict- Under the Unpredictable Plant, Eugene Peterson, you may know him as the author of the message paraphrase of the Bible, tells about being a little five-year-old boy. He had grown up in farmland in Montana. Behind the property that they lived on, there was a property owned by this old Norwegian farmer and his wife, Leonard and Olga Storm were their names. He, he writes about them and says they were imposing figures that sort of exuded a dark Nordic gloom about them most of the time. And when he was five years old, he would walk across the meadow between his backyard and their fields, and he would stand at the barbed wire fence strand that watched the neighbors work the field. Brother Storm, as he called him, had this enormous tractor. Every five-year-old loves an enormous tractor, and the thing he wished for the most in those days was one day to get to climb up on top of that big John Deere and drive it for himself. And one summer day, Eugene was standing at the fence. He would have never dared to to cross it. He was watching Brother Storm uh, plow the field in his big, giant John Deere. He was probably 100 yards away when he spotted him. And he stopped the tractor, and, and, and Brother Storm stood up from the seat, and he made this strong waving motion to him with his arm, kind of over his head and back down to his hip, real quick and sharp. He'd never seen anybody use gestures like that. It was so fast, and he looked mean and angry. He was big and ominous in his, his bib overalls and his straw hat, dirty from working in the fields. He was yelling at him. But the wind was blowing the other way, and so Eugene couldn't really hear what he was saying. He knew he probably shouldn't be there. Most places that five-year-olds find themselves, they probably shouldn't be. I mean, sadly, uh, because he felt like he was being reprimanded, he turned and left. He didn't feel like he was doing anything wrong. He was just watching from what he thought was a safe distance, wishing that someday, somehow, he could get a ride on that tractor. But he went home feeling uh, rejected, a little bit rebuked. Now, the Storms were members of the little Pentecostal church that Eugene and his family went to in those days. They they always sat in the back row. They had a a son who uh, was confined to a wheelchair with muscular dystrophy, so they always were at the back. And by the standards of the working class folks that filled up that church, they were actually pretty wealthy. They'd moved into their mountain valley in eastern Montana and had a lot of money from wheat fields and oil wells. And whenever there was an emergency or a need for money in the church, they seemed to be the ones that would always step up and make it happen. 
the furnace, they would say, needs replacing, or the pastor would do a fundraiser from the pulpit, and they would always be the first ones to raise their hands and keep things running. On the Sunday after that disappointing encounter with Brother Storm in the field, Eugene saw him at church, and he called him over after worship. He said, Little Pete, he always called him Little Pete, why didn't you come out in the field on Thursday and ride the tractor with me? And he told him, I I didn't know I could have. I thought you were chasing me away. And Brother Storm said, I called you to come. I, I waved for you to come. Why did you leave? And he told him he didn't know exactly what he meant or what it was that he was doing when he was waving his arm. And Brother Storm said, what, what do you do when you want to get somebody to come to you? And so little Eugene showed him what he would do if he wanted somebody to come to him. He, he, he put his index finger out and he curled it back and forth three or four times. <laughs> That's how you tell somebody to come. Um, Brother Storm looked at that and, and, and laughed. He had that big, overwhelming, dominating personality and kind of harumphed and said, That's piddling, little Pete. On the farm, we do things big. A little boy, Eugene, says he was crushed. He writes, I felt small. I was already small on the outside. Now I felt small on the inside. Disappointed but also a little angry. This gigantic Norwegian farmer calling me and my world piddling, insignificant, small. Now he thought about that experience Eugene did some years later at the barbed wire fence as a grown-up. He labeled it a failure of imagination. It was that which prevented him from enjoying a ride on the tractor. He could not imagine what that man was doing out there, waving his arms. He said, I had such a small idea of the world. I interpreted the large, generous actions of the farmer through the cramped, confined experience of a five-year-old, and so I, of course, misinterpreted. Our imaginations often fail us, don't they? It's a common experience and maybe the most costly part or kind of a failure of the imagination is that we fail to be able to imagine God at work in our lives anymore. The capacity to to fully imagine life with God as God intends it. That's been, in a sense, the point of this whole series to say that there are qualities and characteristics about the kingdom of God that invite us to to deeper and fuller levels of imagination, to, to view our lives through a different lens, to begin living as if new kinds of things really were possible. And because we can't imagine those things most of the time, we can't hear Jesus' invitation to come to him and experience those places. And so we resign our lives just to live as things are, business as usual. We assume that's the way it's going to be from this point on. So we elude our capacity when when our imaginations fail. They they fail us uh, to tell us that things could be different, that there's something more than what we can see. And that changes. It changes the way that we see the world. It changes how we pray. Our world becomes simply three-dimensional 
It loses the dimension of the kingdom of God that Jesus extends to us. Who are his followers? How did, how did we get there? How did our imagination so fail us along the way? Something has happened that has made us unable to see what Jesus calls us to. And the problem is, is that when we lose our imaginations, we stop seeing what's possible. We no longer look in the box of options and think, you know what, Captain America might just have a dinosaur tail today. We could be astronauts or ballerinas or princesses or kings We could fly with wings over water. And of course, the Christian life isn't about what costume you put on. Madeline Lingle says the dirty devices of this world corrupt our imagination. In other words, we start to think that the only options for the way that we behave or live or lead or serve are the ones the world puts in front of us. And it's left us crippled spiritually. We're robbed of of faith and hope because imagination is is a cousin to both faith and hope. We can't believe that which we cannot imagine. We can't hope for things that we cannot imagine. You can hear it in our words, I can't imagine myself doing that. And we're right, we can't. Faith and imagination and hope, they're cousins. And if we can't imagine ourselves, uh, let's say, riding a bicycle or running a marathon or graduating from graduate school or speaking a second language, we'll never do those things. And the same is true spiritually of the things of God. That until we can imagine the qualities and characteristics that we have listed over the last few weeks, things like witness and service and humility, obedience, loyalty, Our imaginations fail us, and our faith will too. So these disciples are are in the boat, and they conclude the only thing they can imagine. This must be a ghost. It can't be human. It's frightening. It's terrifying. It has to be a spirit. And that's when Jesus hears their shouts and screams, and he challenges their fear. And he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I can't see it in Matthew to know 100%, but I'm pretty confident Jesus said that with a smile on his face. Now, he is, after all, still standing on the water. He'd been looking forward to using that talent. And I think Jesus knows that they couldn't have possibly imagined this was going to happen. And he comes walking to them on the water in those pre-dawn hours in this low light And then, and only in Matthew's account, the the story appears elsewhere in the Gospels, but only in Matthew does Peter, and only Peter, speak up. He has, for a moment, a flash of faith, a stirring of his own imagination. For a moment, he sees the world differently than he's ever seen it before. Jesus is coming, and Jesus is walking on water, and for just a moment, Peter thinks it might be possible I suspect he may have thought this before, been out in a fishing boat, you know, forgot his knife, looked across the sea and thought, that lake looks so solid and shiny, polished as the temple floor. I bet if I ran fast, I could stay on top all the way back to the shore. I wish I could just walk back there and get what I left, not have to turn the whole boat around. Maybe he's thought about it before, but right now, Jesus is saying to him, it's I. I'm walking on the water. And Peter says, 
Lord, and it won't hurt to ask, uh, Jesus said, follow me. It won't hurt to ask, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Imagine that. The other 11 never entertained that thought, to our knowledge. Not even for a second did one of them have the audacity to think, Lord, lead me to do what you're doing. They were still incorporating into their limited view of reality what exactly it was that they were witnessing, that someone, anyone, was was walking on the water. It wasn't computing very well for them. Their imagination had completely failed them. They were still so fearful of what that was. And for a moment, Peter saw what Jesus was doing, and he says, this is so great, I would like to do that as well. Now, I know it was short-lived, but for a moment... Peter is as Jesus is. For a moment, he did it. He surfed the waves of the Sea of Galilee without a board. He walked on water. His imagination had stirred him so much. Think, what if the other 11 had done the same thing? Can you imagine that? The scene, 13 men out on the waves, walking together, celebrating with joy with Jesus, then climbing into the boat and high-fiving each other, chest bumping, just having been excited about what they had just seen, impossible become possible, but the others never saw that. And then, just as Peter was making history, his imagination failed him. He began to imagine, instead, what the wind and the waves were going to do to him. He had seen those before, but he'd failed now to imagine any more that Jesus could do for him what Jesus had invited him to do. And then, true to his name, Peter sank like a rock. And Jesus, of course, rescued him. Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Anne Lamott actually says there's only really three kinds of prayers that we ever pray. She calls them uh, help, thanks, and wow. This is that help prayer. Lord, save me. And Jesus rescued him, pulls him up, and then asks him the obvious question, what happened? You were doing so well. Why did you let your imagination fail? Where was your faith? Why did you imagine something out there was more powerful than I am? Why did your faith fail you? What happened? And Jesus and Peter climb aboard the boat and the wind ceased and 12 disciples looked at each other in awe over what they had witnessed. They could never have imagined this. Now, whatever else Peter's story tells us. It tells us this, that when Jesus invites us out of the boat to join him in doing something, something more than we can imagine, more than we could do on our own, when he invites us to that, we can move forward and step toward him safely in it. When Jesus invites the church out of our routine security or out of our cowardice or out of our selfishness to to venture out into the waves of his mission, we can safely do so. When he invites us to open our hearts and our lives and our possessions and our generosity 
toward his mission, we can safely do that. He says to us, come, and we can come. But we have to keep our imagination prayerfully focused on him and determine that what the Son of God invites us to is is a reality as much as the wind and the waves are. Eugene Peterson's story did not end uh, with his humiliation that Sunday morning in front of Brother Storm. When he reflected on it, he wrote in conclusion that a few days after my disappointment at the edge of his field and his reprimand in church, I was back at the fence watching, hoping I might get a second chance. And the giant Norwegian saw me. He stopped the tractor and he did it again. He made the sweeping motion over his head of invitation. I was through the barbed wire in a flash, running across the furrowed field and then up into that giant green John Deere. He let me stand in front of him, holding the steering wheel, pulling the plow that long stretch, uh, pulling the plow across that long stretch of field. My smallness got absorbed into his largeness. And when you think about it, this scene on the Sea of Galilee, it can seem so ordinary to a lot of us. You know, we just hear Jesus say, uh, it's I, and Peter says, bid me, Lord, come, and we think, oh, isn't that fun? But if you look closer to Jesus, the, the sea walker, you realize that he's doing the unimaginable And now I imagine that Peter sees the joy and the wildness of all of it, and he wants to participate. He sees Jesus doing it, and he says, Lord, may I come too? I imagine Jesus waving his arms up over his head, all big like Brother Storm would do on the tractor. I don't think Jesus reached out with his index finger and curled it three or four times. I think his arms were waving big. Come, come walk on the water. Come trample the waves. Come do something unimaginable. Come join God in a kingdom that will not pass away. Come be forgiven and accepted. Come learn to love and be loved. Come make peace and reconciliation. Come and heal the sick and overcome the evil one. Come, learn to pray. Come, walk on water. Come, walk with God. Come for rest. Come for life. Come, Jesus says. Not with a little finger, but with the full force of the kingdom of God. Jesus waves his arm and says, there's a place in your life now or in the future where where you may hear Jesus inviting you to something more than you ever imagined. And at first it may seem like a ghost, not real, imaginary. And we're going to need to be able to see more than we see in this tangible world around us if we're going to take Jesus' invitation. Because in a world like ours, which is, which is so filled with unchristian hatred and difficult things and terrible choices, Jesus' invitation is going to require great imagination. Men and women of God in the future will have to be so imaginative in the ways that they insist on bringing God's kingdom on earth 
as it is in heaven. The world's options will no longer stand. None of them are good, not even one. But there are things that Jesus invites us to, life and the kingdom of God, that may seem hard to imagine. But when we hear his invitation to come to it, when we let our imagination get refired with the gospel of the kingdom, there are new possibilities in how we can live and who we can be together. He's calling us to come and to walk with him, to rely on him, to represent him. He calls us to come, to see the cross, to see the empty tomb, to receive his spirit and to walk boldly with him on these seas that that otherwise would frighten us. And he invites us to take our smallness and just let it disappear into his largeness. He says, come. And if you have the imagination to believe that Jesus is inviting you into a kingdom that will not pass away, you too might do something unimaginable. So much so that Paul can say in Ephesians 3.20 that God invites us to do more than we could ask or imagine. May it be so right here today. Let's pray together. Father, we get the sense that your arms are waving, that you're excited and passionate about inviting us to come along for the ride, to live in ways that, that maybe we didn't before think were possible sacrificially, obediently, and kingdom living. We pray, God, that in in every way that that opportunity presents itself this week and the next, that we would come running to do the impossible with a God who is so big and so great. We pray that others would see Christ in us through the ways that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.